if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to our second reading and the one on which the sermon today is based. Uh, it's Isaiah 43 today and 44. We're going to look at a little bit of both chapters. Uh, if you're new to us or it's been a while since you've been here, we are uh, continuing a series this fall uh, on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is known as a prophet. Uh, and many times we think of prophets as telling the future. Uh, and that's actually not... All that they do, in fact, the main thing they do is they just tell God's word, whether it's about the future or not. Uh, but this week's passage is very much about the future. Uh, Isaiah is telling us about events that would happen uh, at least a couple hundred, maybe 300 years after he would even die, after he would die. It's amazing. And so let me read to you, starting in verse 14 of chapter 43. This is God's word. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel... For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring uh, down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord said. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let's argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned and those I sent to you rebelled against me. So I disgrace the dignitaries of your temple. I consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you from the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name of Israel. Wow. Uh, since uh, 1979, Americans have been able on Saturday mornings to turn to their local PBS station and watch This Old House. 
It's one of the longest running, I imagine, one of the longest running shows on TV. Have you ever seen this old house? Used to be Bob Villa. Villa? How do you say his name? Villa? Villa, yes, right. Bob Villa. Now it's some other guy. I don't even know what his name is, but I love watching the show, and, and a lot of people do. And, of course, that show spawned a whole, like, cottage industry of shows like it. Uh, now we have whole TV channels devoted to this type of show, which is basically about renovation projects. Why do you think we like to watch those shows so much? Uh, why do we like to do renovation projects ourselves so much? Think about this. Maybe, maybe just maybe, there's something in us that just wants to believe that broken things can be fixed again. Things that are damaged, things that uh, don't seem to be used as they were intended at the beginning to be used can be once again refurbished to be used in the same way. Now think about it this morning. You may not be a Christian. You may not be sure what you believe, but think about this. Why do you think you're so interested in seeing that broken things can be fixed? Could it be that you're wondering for yourself? Or as we say, for a friend? You're asking for a friend? God, can, can something like me, can something like my friend be restored back to its original purpose? That's what Isaiah is talking about in 43 and 44. Last week we saw that the servant of God with a capital S is going to come into the world, Jesus. And he's going to, he's going to restore the whole world, actually. We saw that last week. Justice with a capital J, perfect justice, is going to be extended all over the world from one pole to another, from one sea to another. But this morning, he's getting real personal. He's getting into our living room, our house, and he's saying, not only is God's servant going to restore the world, he's going to restore individual lives. He's going to put individuals like me and you, sinners, back on the path that God had originally designed us for. In other words, here's the main deal. God knows how to save a life. He does. He always has and he always will. This morning, your life is a life that God certainly can save. And he does it by doing three things. If you'll look at your bulletin, I want to talk to you through these three things. They're outlined for you there on the page right over from the scripture reading. First of all, God gives us a restored purpose. Secondly, he gives us a restored record. And lastly, he gives us a restored heart. That's the way God saves a life. Through his son. Let's look at it. First of all, he gives us a restored purpose. Did you notice there, starting in verse 14, the real thrust of all that he's saying is, Israel, I'm saving you for a purpose. I'm saving you for a purpose. Uh, in, in 14 and 15, Isaiah is actually foretelling an event that will happen hundreds of years after he dies. It says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and I'll bring all the Babylonians back as fugitives. Now the Babylonians were a group of people, a very powerful empire in fact, that would come into Jerusalem and completely destroy it. They would burn the temple down, they would, they would destroy everything, tear down the walls, and they carried all the inhabitants of Israel, or at least most of them, far away, I mean over a thousand miles into Babylon where they would have to live for an entire generation. An entire generation, 75 years they would be in Babylon rather than in the promised land. And here Isaiah is saying all those years before, don't worry, when you go to Babylon you will not be there forever. I'm going to deliver you out 
in the same way that I delivered your ancestors when they were in Egypt. And so he goes on to describe that. Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord said, who made a way through the sea. You might remember that story. Did God make a way through the sea even when he delivered his children out of, Israel, out of Egypt? Of course he did. He, he made a path through the mighty waters. He drew out the chariots and the horses of Egypt, which was the big superpower of that day. And what happened to those horses and chariots? They ended up dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. While Israel, this little tiny slave people, came through the sea safe on the other side to be planted in the promised land. God is saying, just like I did it then, all those years in the past, I'm going to do it in the future. In fact, he says, don't dwell on the past. And there's a word in that for a lot of us this morning, isn't there? Don't dwell on the past. Now, sometimes we dwell on the past because we're obsessed over past failures of our own, which is something you also cannot dwell on if Christ comes to cleanse your heart. But here he's saying something even more incredible. Don't dwell on the good things God has done in the past. Open up your eyes and look at what he's going to do now in the future. Don't y'all know we believe in a God who works today? He works in lives today. It's not just about, I mean, the Bible is important. I mean, the Bible is the central thing of our lives, to, to read the past things that God did. But the God who did those things, y'all, he's alive. And sometimes he comes to our lives to say, hey, don't just dwell on the past things. Don't think I'm just a God of ages ago. Remember, I'm a God of today, and I'm a God of tomorrow, and I'm a God of eternity future. And I'm going to come, as he says here to Israel, I'm going to come to deliver you and save a life, even as I saved a life in the past. But notice, at the end of verse 21, the reason why God was going to do this again for Israel. He says, verse 21, you're going to be once again a people that I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. And right there we get a very important thing. When God saves a life, the first thing he does is he restores that person's purpose in this world. When he brought Israel out of Egypt and took them through the water and put them in the promised land, what did he do that for? So that they could be a light to the nations. So that they could stay in this land and build this temple and worship God. And worship God in their lives every day as they obeyed God. And the whole world was supposed to look at Israel and say, man, that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That was their purpose. They had very clearly failed in that purpose. Therefore, they were being evicted out of the promised land for a time. But God says through Isaiah, you're going to be brought back so that once again you can do what I made you and formed you to do. This morning, don't you know, human life is not random and accidental. Human life is not purposeless. Human life has great purpose. In those simple words there, I formed you for myself that you may proclaim my praise, there's a world of encouragement. Is there not? A great way to put it is the way the Bible puts it on the very first page. Genesis 1. Man I will make, God says, man and woman, male and female, I will make in my what? Image. In my likeness. Human beings were made to be mirrors. 
mirrors have to point towards the thing, thing that they reflect in order to reflect it. Isn't that right? And mirrors also have to be clean so that they can reflect accurately. They can't be all scratched up and broken and dirty to reflect accurately what it is they're pointing at. And so to be made in the image of God means that as human beings we were made to look at God full in the face, to, to fully get his glory and take it in unlike any other creature in the world and to, like un- unlike any other creature in the world, to send it back out as a beautiful image to the world. This is what God is like. Think about that. We were made to show the world what God is like so that God could be glorified and God could be praised. And yet, what's, what's wrong? The same thing that can go wrong with a mirror is the same thing wrong with me. I'm turned towards everything but God. Are you? Instead of staring at God as the central thing in my life, I'm staring at all these other things, usually created things. Sometimes even myself. A mirror pointing at a mirror. Reflecting a mirror back to the mirror. Which is strange, but yet that's a habit that I have and that we all have. Not only that, but I'm cracked, I'm broken, I'm smudged by disobedience and rebellion against God. And so even if I do turn to God, I reflect Him extraordinarily poorly. Isn't that right? And yet, what is God saying? I know how to save a life. Don't think this morning that your life cannot be rescued and redeemed and restored back to that purpose. If Jesus Christ really died on the cross, and if he really rose from the dead, then yes, your life too can be brought back to reflection of the Lord. God can use you for that purpose. God says explicitly here, don't don't dwell on the past things. Don't dwell on the former things. Don't think this is a blessing just for Peter and Paul and Mary and all those folks you read about in the Bible. This is a blessing for y'all, for us. In Mulberry, Florida, in 2021, sitting at 505 Northeast 1st Avenue this morning, God is here, and he knows how to restore people's purpose. Just like Bob Villa, Villa, (laughs) like Bob Villa knows how to restore an old house, God knows how to do it, that you may proclaim my praise. I listened this, morning, this week to a podcast that was interviewing a guy named Alan Noble. He's a professor at, I think it's Houston Baptist uh, College or University. I think that's what it is. Um, it may be Tulsa Baptist. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. It's one of those out there in the, in the West uh, Baptist universities. And he said, you know, he, he believes that in our modern age, we've completely forgotten this sense of purpose. And the reason for it is we've convinced ourselves that we belong to ourselves. We've convinced ourselves that I belong to me, you know, and I should be the one that calls the shots or controls my life or, you know, dictates whether it goes good or bad. Just by my own strength and by my own skill. He said, when that happens, it's like the animals in a zoo. Have you ever been to a zoo? I, I like zoos, but zoos are also sad in a way because you go and see that majestic bear and he's in this cage or this, well, it's, you know, it's a souped up, it's a big cage, but it's a cage nonetheless. And what is usually the bear doing? They just walk in circles. This is not something they do in the wild. 
They only do this in captivity. They walk in circles. And Alan Noble says, I feel like my life is like that sometimes. I'm just a bear walking in circles and circles and circles. He says, the reason is we have to recapture the ancient Christian truth that I am not my own, but I was formed for him. Not only in the beginning, but through Jesus, I've been reformed. I've been formed again. I'm being refashioned. Not for myself, but for him. And so this morning, I wonder, what is your life pointing at? If you're a mirror, what are you pointing at? If you're a mirror, how clean are you as a mirror? And do you believe that Jesus is really able to restore your purpose? That's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus does to save a life today is he restores our record. Our record. This is so important. Because look at verse 22. Uh, after God has says, said to Israel, I, I formed a people for myself that they may proclaim my praise, he goes right next verse to say, but yet you have not done that. Look at that. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You haven't brought me sheep for burnt offerings. You haven't honored me with your sacrifices and so on. Now, the remarkable thing here is that it's pretty obvious from, if you read the rest of Isaiah, it's pretty obvious that he's not actually saying, Israel, I have a beef with you. You've never come to church before. You've never worshipped me ever before. You've never prayed. You've never offered any of the sacrifices I told you to offer. That's not what he's saying, because actually, uh, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, it says they had been doing that supremely well. They'd been showing up, they'd been offering all the gifts that they were supposed to offer to a T, and yet in Isaiah 1, God says, you know what, I can't stand your worship services. I can't stand them. I don't even want to be in them. And Israel, I'm sure, was thrown back by that, but God gives them the reason. Because there you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's what Isaiah is talking about. When he says, you have not called on me, it's not that Israel hadn't been calling it's they hadn't been calling on God. Because they hadn't been calling from the heart. When it says, you know, you have not wearied yourselves for me, they had been wearying themselves. That They had been wearing themselves out with religion. And yet God says, it, it ain't on my account that you've been wearing yourself out. They had been giving sacrifices and grain offerings and all that, but he says, it's not, it's not me. I'm not the one that's burdened you. Look at what God says in verse 24, the end of it. I'm not the one burdened you, but you certainly have been burdening me. How have they been burdening God? With your sins. You've wearied me with your offenses. And this is a really, this is an important thing to understand. Mere religion, apart from Jesus, of whatever type it is, whether it's Christian, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Buddhist, doesn't really matter which stripe it is. If it's apart from Jesus, apart from a true and living faith in Christ, it really just masks over a problem that is unsolved still. So you can pray, you can sing, you can listen, you can read, you can study, you can do all the things, right? But if you're not addressing the core issue, and the core issue is you're a sinner in the sight of a holy God. That's the core issue this morning. You're a sinner in the sight of a holy God. And God cannot, cannot let sinners like us into his heaven. That's important. 
If you're not addressing that in the way that God has addressed it through Jesus, his son, then all the religion in the world will just simply put a thin veneer of respectability over the top of a deep, deep, deep cancer that you can't solve and that I can't solve. And so look at what God says. Verse 25, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. You've been wearing me out, Israel. I don't even like going to church with you. That's what he says. I don't like going to church with you. Because you're there and you're saying these right things, but your heart is so far away from me. You don't even recognize you're a sinner, let alone come to me for salvation and grace. And yet, I am the one. I, even I, am he. It's as if God says, I will do it. No, seriously, I. No, no, really, me. Trust me, not you, but me. What God is saying here is this principle of grace, which is at the very heart and soul of true Christian religion, not just mere religion apart from Jesus. True Christian faith is based on grace. Where every single person, if they're going to have their life saved, all of us, have to come to the conclusion that we have nothing to offer God of our own that he could possibly ever reward. We have no currency, y'all. We are spiritually bankrupt when it comes to God. Everybody, dead in our trespasses and sins. The only hope that we have is that God is a certain kind of God. Verse 25, for my own sake. I will forgive your sins. I will remember them no more. He says, come, review the past. You know, look at verse 26. Review the past. Let's argue the matter. He's saying, come to court. Come into the courtroom and state your case. Try to prove that you're innocent. I, I guarantee you, here's what's going to come up. Your first father sinned. That's, I think this is talking about Abraham. Abraham started sinning. And then on down the line, even the people I sent to teach you, have also rebelled against me. Even, the, even the, you know, the cream of the crop among you, the people that I sent to be priests and prophets and all those people, even they have been sinners and rebels, which is the reason why I've sent disgrace, I've sent destruction, and I've sent scorn into your life so that you will be humbled and learn that it's only by my gracious action on your behalf that you could possibly be brought back to me. You see what God is doing? God is showing us the way to be unlocked from the prison of our pasts. We said in the first point that sometimes we dwell on God's actions in the past without thinking. We should dwell on them, but we dwell on them without thinking about God being alive today. But it's also a big problem for us to dwell on our own past. And to think that the sins of our past are absolutely insurmountable and unforgivable and yeah, maybe God's going to let me into heaven, but by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, chin, I'm going to barely get in. This is saying, no, if you think that way, actually, you've got something off about the whole idea of salvation in the Bible. you got something way off. Because if anyone's going to be saved at all, it's only through the work of Jesus Christ, the death on the cross, the blood that cleanses and washes away so that God, the one who remembers everything, will remember our sins no more. Isn't that amazing? One of my, uh, a dear mentor of mine, he's a retired old pastor, and he's, he's been very helpful to me through the years. Uh, one time he told me this story. 
Uh, it was in the 1970s uh, when he was younger, and it was during the height of one of the waves of the feminist movement, you know, when everybody, you know, women's liberation and things like that. And he said one day, he's, he's kind of an old-fashioned guy, he's a World War II vet, and uh, he opened up a door one time in a public place for a lady during the 70s. And the lady says, you don't need to open the door for me. I don't need, I don't need a man. I, I don't need, ladies don't need men to open doors for them. And he said immediately, he came back and just kind of came to him. Well, well, ma'am, I'm not opening the door because you're a lady. I'm opening the door because I'm a gentleman. And... I love that story, actually. I, 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 I actually like dream of that happening to me so that I could say <laughs> something that awesome. But I thought about it this week. Because God is saying, listen, you got it all wrong if you think God is opening the door for you because you're a lady. <laughs> or, or doing something kind for us because we somehow earn it or deserve it. No, the reason why God forgives, the reason why he saves a life, is because he's a gentleman. Because he's merciful, gracious, it loves us with a love that don't quit. Right? A, a love that continues to persevere even when we've rebuffed it over and over and over again. And so this morning, I want you to know, if you're presuming on God rather than trusting in him, if, if you're acting like religion is a transaction between you and God where you give a little and God gives a little, I guarantee you, your, your religious life is going to feel like it did for Israel in verses 22 to 24. You're going to be wore out. You're going to be tired. You're going to be bitter and all those kinds of things towards God, towards the church, towards everything else. But God this morning stands before you and says, it's not on my account that you're weary. You're wore out, but you wore yourself out. And in the process, you've been wearing me out. I don't even want to come to church with you. Because you keep talking about works, 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 works. Here's what I can do, 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 do to make things right between me and God. And you haven't stopped to just say, Lord, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. God, because of your great mercy, am I spared and brought back in. Not because of anything I have done in the past or will do in the future. You've got to even root that out of your mind. You know, sometimes we think, yeah, God forgave me of my past life, but now that I'm a Christian, there are things I've got to do in the future to pay him back. And God says, no, you're going to wear yourself out thinking that way. The stuff you're supposed to do for God is not to pay him back. The stuff you're supposed to do for God is because, well, you love God. That's the reason. I mean, well, why do you obey? Why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? It's because you love God. And the only way this verse is telling us that we learn to actually love God and not just do our duty is by understanding grace. I, even I, only me, I'm the only one that can do it. I am the one who blots out your transgressions. Not because you're a lady, but because I'm a gentleman. Because I am merciful and I remember your sins no more. We're going to talk more about this theme next week as we look at Isaiah 53, uh, where it pictures Jesus, the Lamb, who is put to death in the place of sinful people. So I could say more about that this morning, but I'm going to hold that off to next week. But just know that that forgiveness comes from the, the generosity of God, but it wasn't cheap for God. God. God committed to something that he knew was going to cost him crucifixion. 
And yet he still says, I'm the one who's going to blot out the sins of my people. Now lastly this morning, in order to save a life, God doesn't just restore a purpose and restore a record, but he restores hearts. He restores hearts. When, you know, let's imagine this scenario for a minute. Um, And I also got this from another mentor of mine in, in the faith who always uses this, and I think it's a great example. Imagine that in the night tonight, I go to your house and steal your car and take it on a joy ride because I just like your car and I want to go fast. My car doesn't go fast. And so I go to your house and steal your car and I ride it all around Mulberry and I'm just having a good old time. But then, you know, about one o'clock in the morning, I wrap it around a tree and I absolutely damage and destroy your car. It's not totaled, but it's pretty close to total. And imagine I, you know, get it towed to your house the next morning, and I, and I knock on the door and say, hey, you know, Vivian, I'm sorry. I, I just had a need for speed last night, and I came, and I stole your car, and I went on a joyride, and, well, here, you, you see what happened. Would you, would you forgive me? Think about that. What would you say? I mean, maybe you would be shocked, you know, first of all, but... But maybe you would have a hard time forgiving me, at least initially. Maybe you might forgive me if, you know, maybe the greatest person in the room might be like, okay, sure, yeah, I mean, apparently you need some help, Stan, and we're going to try to get you the help you need, but I forgive you. But think about it, even if you were to extend forgiveness, even if you were to restore my record, what is still wrong? It's sitting in your driveway, right? What's still wrong? you got to go to work tomorrow, and your car is undrivable. It's sitting there completely mangled up. What do I have to do besides just saying, please forgive me for taking a joyride with your car and stealing it in the middle of the night? i got to fix it. i got to bring it back to working order. So that instead of being carless and not being able to get to work and take the kids to school and to all their different things, you would have a way to do that, which is what you have the car for in the first place. In chapter 44, verses 1 through 5, God says this, Not only am I going to come to you and grant you the forgiveness that you asked for because you stole my car and took a joyride and wrapped it around a tree, but I'm also going to, on my own dime, foot the bill of the car that you destroyed. And oh, by the way, the car is you. The car is yourself. Look at what it says. It's a beautiful thing. He says, but now listen, Jacob, my servant. Can you imagine? He calls Israel his servant, even though they they were were wearing him out with their sins. Israel, you're the one I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, another name for Israel, whom I have chosen for, listen, I will pour water on thirsty ground. And I will make streams flow in the desert or on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God says, not only will I blot out your transgressions, not only will I change your record and make your guilty record into an innocent one, but I'm also going to address the problem that's in your heart. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to bring you back in line by my spirit to make you want to obey me. 
to make you love me from the heart so that a life of worship and obedience and service wouldn't be a drudgery anymore, but would be something that is really the song of your life, the thing that you just can't wait to get up in the morning and do. Israel, my chosen, Israel, my servant, you are going to become what I declare you to be. And right there is kind of the Christian life in summary. God declares us to be something we're not because of Jesus. He says we're we're his beloved children. We are perfectly justified and accepted. We're worthy of entering the kingdom of heaven. We are not those things, and yet God calls us those things because of Jesus. But the whole Christian life is about us step by step becoming what he has said we are in actual reality and in actual fact. So that those who are not innocent, yet they're declared innocent, might actually over time and and one day when we see Jesus face to face, it'll be finished, we'll actually become innocent, spotless. Those who are definitely not God's children by nature are actually going to become like people who live as if they are God's children. Beloved children in the family who want nothing more than to see the Father glorified in, in in the family business extended. Isn't that amazing? There's another detail there that I want you to notice. Do you see how he calls them first Jacob, second Israel, and last Jeshurun? That's on purpose. Each of those words are names for the same nation, right? Remember uh, Jacob was an actual man, and God came and saved his life. Uh, Do you remember what Jacob means? The name? Liar, cheater, deceiver, grasper. Uh, it's, not a good, it's not a flattering name. He, he was named that because of how he grabbed at Esau's heel. He was, he was born as tw- twins. He grabbed at his heel as he was coming out of the womb. And from that point, Jacob really was kind of a cheater, like an underhanded, sneaky guy. And yet, remember that night, God comes to Jacob and he wrestles with Jacob through the night. And he wounds him on the hip, and Jacob walks with a limp, and God renames him Israel, which means wrestles with God, which became, of course, the name of the entire nation that would come from his family. Well, notice the name Jeshurun. You may even have a footnote if you have your Bible that tells you what Jeshurun means. It's a rare name for Israel, but it is used in other places. The name means upright one. One who is straight as an arrow. One who does exactly as God says. Do you notice the progression there? Cheater, liar, crooked, to wrestling with God, to finally straightened out. That's the path of every Christian. Of every Christian. Crooked, mangled, broken, and yet God comes to us and says, Oh, my servant, my chosen one. Because of my great love, I love you and I I bring you to myself. I'm going to wrestle with you throughout your life. And it's not going to always be pleasant. Sometimes you're going to have to walk with a limp because of my wrestling with you. But at the end of all that wrestling, Jeshurun. You're going to be upright. You're going to be the kind of people that I originally made you to be. The mirror that points directly at God and is perfectly clear and clean, cleaner than Windex can get it. Showing back perfectly the glory, the grace, the holiness, the love of God. Do you see that? When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, 
which is what happens to everybody who believes. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. You don't have to wait on it. You don't have to do some special works to get it. God sends the gift of the Spirit. And he begins this work, this major shift, where we become people who freely, joyfully, lovingly accept the call of God on our lives. That's why it says at the end there, your children, verse 5, some of them will say, I belong to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? From the nation where they're like, oh, i got to go to church again. I'm so wore out by church. And God says, well, I'm wore out by you. But yet I love you and come to me and I'm going to change you. One day their children are going to be like, when do we get to go to church again? I belong to the Lord. I belong to God. When do I get to read his word again? When do I get to tell somebody else about my Savior? When do I get to obey him at work one more day? Oh, that my sleep would be short tonight so I could get back to work tomorrow to show what God is like in my work. That's going to happen, he says. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. They're going to be honest about their sin and background. And still others, it says, will even write it on their hand. They'll get a tattoo that says, The Lord's. The Lord's. I belong to God. Isn't that amazing? The sign that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, the sign, is that you've learned not to be wearied by God's ownership of your life, but to be overjoyed by his ownership. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? This morning, God knows how to save a life. Every person here, every person watching or listening into this needs these three things very desperately. You may think you need a lot of other things, but these are the three things God says you need most desperately. You need a restored purpose. You've lost your way. You're like a bear circling the the cage all the time. And the reason why you're so upset and anxious probably is because you forgot why you're here. You need God to restore that. You need a new record. You say, well, I don't feel guilty. Well, just because you don't feel guilty doesn't mean you ain't guilty. There's a lot of people who don't feel guilty but are guilty. And God says, I'm able to completely exchange that guilt for innocence if you'll come to faith in my son. And the last thing you need this morning is, man, you've got to get that wreck cleaned up that is your heart. Your heart, when God says something, says, oh, I don't want to do that. God needs to change that to be like, wow, God, tell me some more stuff to do because I love following you. What if God did that? Well, I think it would be a whole new heavens and earth, which is actually where we're headed.